How are you, Tope? Nice to have you with us. I'm Maurice Jones with LISC, and I have the pleasure of having a conversation today with Tope Falarin, who is LISC VP for uh, content and storytelling, or storytelling and content, whichever <laughs> order that we uh, put them in. Tope, welcome uh, welcome to the podcast. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, let's start with just having you tell us your story. Of course. Um, yeah. Um, so my parents are from Nigeria. Uh, my father and mother came to America in uh, 19... Uh, sort of 19, I think 1979 or so, uh, settled in Utah because my father got a scholarship to a school in Utah called Weber State University. Um, and and then I came on the scene a couple of years after they arrived and my brother uh, followed shortly thereafter. I spent the first 13 years of my life in Utah, which was an incredibly interesting experience. Um, in Ogden? In Ogden. Well, so all, all over Utah, actually, I, I grew up, uh, I spent some time in Bountiful and Murray and Layton. These are all cities in northern Utah. And the thing that unites all of them is that they're all sort of uh, predominantly white. There aren't many people of color around at all, especially in the 1980s. There might be more now, but mm. back then, um, we were, for all intents and purposes, oftentimes the only sort of family of color for miles around. Um, so why Utah? How did your family choose? Yeah, so my dad got a scholarship. Initially, he got a scholarship to uh, UCLA. And then uh, one of his friends said that there's a school in this place called Utah that's really trying to raise its international profile. And, um, and my father's friend was also from Nigeria and said, hey, you should come out and give it a shot. And so my father, sight unseen, uh, thought this would be a great <laughs> opportunity, didn't know anything about Utah, and uh, shortly discovered when he arrived that it was uh, not like, certainly not like L.A. and not like anywhere else he'd been in his life. Um, but I think, you know, the funny thing is that um, there are many things that recommend Utah, uh, I mentioned that I spent the first thir- 13 years of my life there. I was, I- I'm pretty sure this is the case. I was the first um, black kid to go to my elementary school, Bountiful Elementary in Bountiful, mm-hmm. Utah. Um, and so that was difficult. And I was made aware of the fact that I was different very early on. I never for a moment thought about uh, this idea that I was different in any way from my peers. And sort of first day of school, uh, someone came up to me and and started rubbing my skin and this uh, kid was completely flummoxed by the fact that my skin remained brown even after his rubbing. He thought that uh, that I was dirty and that, you know, sort of white skin w- would reveal itself after his rubbing. And so I, I kind of grew up in a situation where this was par for the course, where many of the people I grew up with had never interacted with a black person before. They'd only seen black people on television and were still confused about the even the idea of a black person. And so... That was troubling and difficult and certainly affected the way that I perceived myself for many years. But the other side of that equation is that I also had teachers who were just incredibly generous to Mm -hmm. me and kind to me Mm -hmm. as well. I recall I had a teacher in first grade. Her name was Mrs. Abel, um, one of the most important people in my life. First grade. First grade, Mrs. Abel. I'll never forget her for as long as I live because Mrs. Abel on the weekends would take me to the museum. She'd take me to Salt Lake City or take me to various cultural events that were happening um, and she really seemed invested in my life. My second grade teacher, Mrs. Bartholomew, was the same. I can remember many of these teachers because they took an active role yeah, in my life yeah, and my no, development. That's, that's so, powerful. Yeah. Um, so we were there for 13 years, and then my father uh, wasn't able to finish college, and so he was a working class 
person uh, and my stepmother as well was a nurse. And so he uh, moved to Texas. He decided that we needed to move to Texas so he could find some better economic opportunities. He was also keen to move closer to, to more Nigerians. And there is a large Nigerian population in Dallas and Houston. So we moved to the Dallas area. Mm-hmm. And that for me was just a profound moment of cultural shock. I had never been around. I'd, I Every sort of year, I maybe met one or two um, sort of black people, especially when we moved to Ogden, because Ogden is the second biggest city in Utah. But, you know, sort of contrast that with moving to Texas. We moved to Carrollton, and all of a sudden I'm thrust in this very diverse uh, uh, sort of situation. And I spend I, I spend probably up to a year trying to figure out myself in this context. The one thing that saved me was that I played basketball. Um, you know, basketball in Utah is something of a religion because of the Utah Jazz. <laughs> and I grew up idolizing John Stockton and Carl Malone. Uh, they're famous for their pick and roll, you know, sort of. And I, so I watched more than my fair share of basketball, played basketball all the time. And so um, I went to a place where people kind of instantly questioned me because of the way I spoke and the way I, I sort of comported myself. But then on the basketball court, we, we were able to work out a number of things. So yeah. that was really helpful for me. Um, so I, I stayed, we moved around Texas. We ended up in a place called Grand Prairie. And I went to school in neighboring Arlington. I graduated from James Bowie High School. Uh, when I was young, I had my father was one of these very kind of uh, strict figures who had a program for my life. And one of the things that he did when I was growing up was there was a documentary about Booker T. Washington that aired when I was young on PBS. Mm. It was called Booker. And my dad was so taken with Booker T. Washington's story that he made us watch this thing once a week. And so from that, I got this sense that um, at the end of the documentary, of the movie, they talk about the fact that Booker T. Washington started Tuskegee Institute. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to go to Tuskegee. And then I started watching a show called A Different World and learned all about um, Morehouse and Spellman. And so uh, when I was in the fifth or sixth grade, I sent off for a brochure uh, from Morehouse College and they sent it back. And so in my mind, I'd been fixated on this idea that I needed to go to a place like Morehouse because that's where I would discover myself. And so uh, a long way of saying that I ended up at Morehouse College um, and had a really interesting and important time. It's maybe the, the, a foundational part of my life. I learned a great deal about myself, about, um, about uh, sort of uh, African-Americans in this country, obviously, and, about, and, and Morehouse is a very diverse school. And, and that might sound weird to some people since it's predominantly black and all male, but there are black folks from all over the world who go to Morehouse. And so I learned a, a great deal about people from other countries as well and, and, and the context that they emerge from. Um, I spent a semester at the University of Cape Town when I was at Morehouse and also a year at Bates College. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of my time at Morehouse, I was fortunate enough to win a Rhodes Scholarship. I went to Oxford for two years and I earned a master's in comparative social policy, which is actually where I first learned about LISC. Um, LISC came, a, 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 came oh, up a couple right? times. In the in, social policy piece. Absolutely. Um, and so I did, uh, I had two sort of concentrations for my first master's. One was poverty and the second was education. And so uh, LISC came up in both contexts. And that's when I began to think seriously about sort of working at LISC. One of my very good friends um, in grad school actually went off to LISC after his time at, at Oxford. And we remained in touch. And he, you know, whenever he was in D.C., he would talk about his time at LISC. So that definitely had an impression on me. Uh, my second master's was in African studies. After Google, um, after Oxford, I went to work at Google in their London office. Uh, worked there for two years, then came to D.C. Uh, and worked at a place called the Institute for Policy Studies, a progressive think tank in D.C. And then, what did you do for Google? 
I was on the public policy team. Um, And so it was a really incredible job, actually. I was 25 when I got the job. And this was a time when Google was expanding rapidly across Europe. And and so they just needed, you know, I maybe I'm being somewhat self-deprecating, but I'm convinced they needed to just put bodies in places because I found myself in the most kind of incredible situation. So just as a very brief example, during my first week on the job, my boss walks up to my cubicle and says, okay, so, and she gives me this very, very kind of capsule summary of what's happening. We've been uh, struggling in Russia for a very long time. Russia has this search engine that's doing really well. And uh, Google wants to launch its own search engine in Russia. So we need you to go to Moscow and um, be present at the press conference to help announce this new uh, search engine in Russia. So I've been at the company. This was my fourth day on the job when I find myself in Moscow. Um, and then my the, the president of Google Europe walks up to my cubicle shortly afterwards and hands me a, a paper. And he says, you can't say anything on this on this paper or our stock price will drop. And so, you know, I felt the kind of sort of wow. weight of the world yeah. on my shoulders. Yeah. And it was a very Google thing because the Google ethos, at least then, was, you know, very much a sink or swim kind of situation. If you sunk, then they, they throw you out the door. But if you manage to kind of thrive in these situations, then you get more responsibility. And I was fortunate enough to do pretty well. And um, I I was uh, I was responsible for public policy and public relations in five countries in the Middle East and Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. including Turkey and Israel. So I spent the bulk of my time in Istanbul, Ankara in Turkey, and also wow. Haifa, Tel Aviv, yeah. and Jerusalem in in Israel. And so I had a number of really sort of exciting and incredible experiences in both places. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful that I had that experience out of grad school because it taught me a lot about the world. I traveled a great deal more than I'd ever traveled before. And I was placed, I was at the forefront of very interesting conversations that were happening around tech policy, around public policy, um, and around like the importance of the internet as a source of information for people around the world. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I just gained immensely from that, but I was also working 70 to 80 hours a week. I wasn't sleeping very much. I was always at Heathrow on my way somewhere else, which sounds glamorous and was for a time. But, uh, at the end, towards the end of my tenure at, at Google, I was starting to think seriously about what I actually wanted to do with my life because there were two pathways in front of me. One was, you know, continue at Google and, and rise up the ranks or figure out, you know, I had had this, this desire to write and to engage as an, as an artist. And so I thought, well, maybe I'm still relatively young. I can figure out what that's all about. So that's why I moved back to DC, uh, to, to the States and settled in DC. Mm-hmm. And how does Lisk fit into the story? Uh, as I said before, I've thought about Lisk since grad school. And the reason why Lisk has always appealed to me, I mean, there are a number of reasons, but the two that come to mind immediately is one, LISC is simultaneously, it's a national organization with a national reach, and that has always appealed to me. So it's working on a lot of issues from a kind of macro perspective, but at the same time, it has a solid local presence in a number of cities across the country and also a significant rural presence. So I think I was attracted to working for an organization that kind of covered both bases, that has a national reach, that has... And, and everything that goes with that, you know, sort of national kind of strategic thinking around how to approach certain problems and also is deeply ensconced in certain local contexts. So that was one uh, reason. Two, uh, the fact that LISC is working across a number of sectors that it's involved in housing, education, um, safety, um, healthcare, and a number of other things. So there's a, an opportunity to work across and, and kind of figure out uh, how to craft solutions that attack the issues that that LISC is, is attacking from multiple angles. That also appealed to me. And three, I think there was an opportunity as well to think about um, the thing that I am really deeply obsessed with, which is storytelling. Mm. Um, I have come to believe that it's maybe the most important sort of singular force in human history. And 
Some people might say that I'm biased in saying that because I consider myself a storyteller. But stories are the basis of who we are. You know, uh, the great uh, writer Jam Coetzee, who won a Nobel Prize for Literature from South Africa, says that we are all walking stories, and I'm convinced of that. Uh, in my own life, that's been the case because my dad, as I mentioned before, was a working class individual, so he couldn't offer me money. He couldn't offer me status or anything else, but he could offer me a story of myself about how I could be successful, even when there were moments when he didn't have enough. You know, for a time, my dad was a single father, and so I remember going to get uh, getting our, our government cheese and our government peanut butter and shaking the peanut butter so the oil and the peanut butter would mix up. I remember mm-hmm. standing in line for the free the free lunch line at school, me, my brother, and a couple other kids, and everyone else was paying for their lunch. And so there were a number of moments in my life when I was kind of depressed about where we were. My dad would always say, well, you will end up somewhere great. And the reason why that will be the case is because you're working hard. And so uh, when I got to college and I started kind of, kind of envisioning for myself the kind of future that I wanted to inhabit, I was able to draw on the skills that I had gained from my father, which is the ability to tell a story about my future that in some ways contradicted what my environment was telling me, yeah. that yeah. the kind of person I was. And so... I think there's an opportunity to do this kind of work at LISC. And in some ways, I've started doing that. I I was fortunate enough to spend a few days in Milwaukee uh, talking and and writing and and thinking about the ACRE program, which is a program that empowers um, people of color who are interested in commercial real estate to kind of enter that field. Uh, There's a long history in this country of uh, people of color not being involved in that particular field of work. And so, again, this is about a narrative from a couple of perspectives. One, there's a narrative that these folks have that they can't be successful as commercial real estate developers, that it's not a field for them. Two, there's the, the, no one's telling a story about their ambitions um, in terms of succeeding in this line of work. And so I went to Milwaukee to cover the second part of that equation to tell stories about people who have been successful, who, because of Acre, a program that LISC has been involved with since the very beginning in Milwaukee, um, because of their involvement in, in Acre, they've been able to have uh, great careers in commercial real estate or the nonprofit world or even the private sector as well. Um, and in doing that second part, I was able to hear about that first part. I talked to a number of people who said, I never saw for myself the opportunity to do this kind of work until I participated in Acre. And Acre, of course, provided a number of hard skills they needed to, to succeed as commercial real estate developers, but it also provided them with a different narrative, a narrative that said, you can actually do this. Mm-hmm. And for any number of people, that is so incredibly important because so many of us grew up without that narrative. And so that's part of the work that I want to do is to um, provide people with a platform to tell their stories and broadcast narratives that haven't been broadcast before. It's good stuff, and we obviously needed. Uh, the issue of narrative is a really powerful one for the folks that we work with in communities all over the country. Yeah. Often, the narratives of the communities that uh, the prevailing narratives of the communities that we work in are one constructed by others, yeah. and two um, are not very flattering. Yeah. Um, how will you help us at LISC uh, to uh, attempt to help folks in the communities where we serve take control of their narratives yeah. and take control of the construction? That's such a great question. It's a difficult question as well, Um, and one that I've spent a great deal of thinking about. I come back to this idea that I think storytelling and narrative making, they're they're really connected to power. Part of it is Mm. who has the power to tell their own stories. And um, there's a long history in in this country of certain people being, um, they're able to do certain things because they're they're empowered to tell their own version of history, their own own story about who they want to be and who they are. And so part of the job of 
of confronting what you've just expressed is empowering people to tell their own stories. And part of that is saying you can tell your own story. There are people, there's a receptive audience that is keen to hear what you have to say. Part of that, too, is um, providing people with a platform to tell those stories. And I think that that's where I fit in, hopefully. That's the kind of work that I'm very interested in doing. Um, So there's the power component. And there's also, too, um, just the other side of that is listening when people tell their stories. For far too long, there have been many people in this country who are screeching at the top of their lungs about their conditions and where they are, and nobody's listened to them. So the the very first step is is offering an ear to these people and saying, we, we hear what you have to say. It's funny, I've spent the past week thinking uh, deeply about LISC's commitment to creative placemaking, which is something mm. that we are have been involved with in a very intimate way for at least the, the past five years or so. Yeah. And part of the job of creative placemaking is empowering artists and communities across the country um, to tell the stories of their communities, you know, and that can be from a narrative perspective, that can be via visual art, that can be in terms of like building a space where people from different parts of the community can come together and talk about who they are as well. Um, this is, you know, it, in some ways, I suppose people could say that it's somewhat ineffable. It, you can't put your arms around it, but this is where the true uh, work of building community happens. It's where I remember um, when I was quite young. My dad would be incredibly happy if a friend came from Nigeria. Or we often hosted people who wanted uh, to to get a visa to stay in in Nigeria. And the first thing that they did when when these people came to the house was that my dad would go down uh, to to our basement with this person or people, and they would tell stories about where they were from, hmm. about who they and and I saw in those moments that they were creating community in a very visceral way. Lisk is part of. Uh, doing this on a bigger scale in communities across the country. We empower artists to to create visual um, kind of monuments to their communities and to what their communities can be. Uh, we empower people to kind of build buildings that uh, exemplify what a community is all about. We do all kinds of work. And this is uh, this occurs right at the nexus between um, sort of the policy work we do, uh, some of the housing work we do, some of the safety work we do, and the creative work as well. And I think that's where there's a possibility for all kinds of exciting and wonderful things to happen. Sounds like you should be busy every hour. Uh, well, the day I'm then, trying my, my best. There's plenty of work to <laughs> I'm do. I'm trying huh? my best. Well, and we, we are delighted that you're with us, delighted that you're going to be helping us yeah. get these stories out, helping the communities uh, whose stories, as you say, uh, need to be told and need to be listened to. Let me uh, wrap up with you've got, a debut novel, yeah. you know, a particular kind of black man. Tell us, uh, tell us what, uh, what, what. Tell us about this story. Yeah. So this is connected to, uh, you know, the the life that I try to craft for some myself. Some would say, by the way, that it's got some biographical. Uh, it absolutely pieces. does. Okay. It absolutely does. There is certainly an autobiographical component. I'll be completely honest with you. When I started writing my book, I wasn't sure if I was writing a memoir or a work of fiction. I had no idea. I just sat down and said, "Well." I have, again, I have this compulsion to write, so I'll just write. And the thing I discovered as I wrote is that it started from a very, one could even say explicitly autobiographical place. Um, but the more I wrote, the more I discovered that the character who became Tunde was, um, he thinks differently than I do, and he was taking a different path than, than I took. And so it became to me that this was actually a novel. Um, I started writing this novel back in 2010, hmm. so it's been a few years. And I think the one thing that I struggled with was that I have a deep interest in policy and, you know, as evidenced by the work I, I, I did before coming to LISC uh, and my graduate work as well. But I'm also an artist. So I was 
and and this is kind of core to the question of who I am as a person. I was seeking to to to, to find a way to kind of integrate these two parts mm-hmm. of myself because everything I had been exposed to said that I had to choose one or the other. There was no possible way I could be a sort of uh, policy figure of of some importance if I was spending my evenings sort of thinking about literature and vice versa. If I was doing all this work on literature, then I was ignoring this other side of myself. Um, but I think writing this book was the beginning of my journey to discovering that I could do both um, and that uh, these two passions are, you know, sit within me and I can honor them at the same time. And so the novel is a, is a culmination of that. It's it's a story about somebody who grew up in similar circumstances to me who's trying to figure himself out. But it's also a story about the importance of listening to people, I think, who have been marginalized for too, for far too long. Part of the reason why Tunde wants to tell this, his story is because he's convinced that nobody has heard a story like his before. And that's why he's so confused. Um, he doesn't have a template to follow, and that's another important uh, important aspect of storytelling. It's hearing what people have done before you, to, and, and that provides you with some motivation or some clues as to how you can live your life. He doesn't have that. His parents are from Nigeria. He's growing up in a context that is in many ways alien to him, so he's trying to craft a story for himself that provides him with a pathway to the future, and that's co- precisely connected to the work that Lisk is doing on a daily basis. So there are certainly connections there, and I'm incredibly happy I just want to pause to say that I'm happy and and pleased that you provided me with an opportunity to uh, figure out how to merge these interests that I have in this space. And so kudos to you and thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, And the book, I think, represents my attempt to kind of bring those two things together. It's our pleasure and um, congratulations on the book, a particular kind of black man and the accolades that you're getting uh, on the book. And Thank you, too, for the work that you're already doing on behalf of LISC and the, and the communities that we serve. And, look, we just look forward to um, telling more stories yeah. together and, and creating more stories here, together. Here. So here, here. thanks and congratulations. Thank you so much, Maurice. Right.